Good morning everyone. It's great to be able to uh, share with you again today. Uh, we thank God for his help this week and all the things that we've uh, we've been up to. Um, we're going to be looking uh, at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 today and continuing our series uh, in that book. Uh, you may remember last week Nathan shared it with us from chapter 5 and he helpfully recapped um, some of the earlier chapters and he reminded us that what we feel is important uh, isn't always what we need. By God's grace we will hopefully see even as we share today that many of the issues that face the early church are still relevant to us today. Uh, we saw in chapter 5 that Paul was addressing a, a serious case of incest that was there within the church and the need for uh, church discipline to be exercised and we, we finished that that section uh, with a call to expel the immoral brother from the church, uh, not seeing him as an enemy, but warning him as one who was loved as a brother. And we know that there weren't chapter breaks in the original text, um, but chapter six ends with these words. I just want us to, to read them and to sort of have them running in our minds uh, while we're looking into this passage today. It says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and whom you've received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. Let's hold that thought or those thoughts in our minds while we look into God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that as we look into your word this morning, that we would, Lord, not just have an academic understanding of the text, but Father, your spirit would help us to understand the things that are relevant to us today. That Lord, we would be a people who are being prepared and changed, Lord Jesus, to reflect your goodness and your glory in the world that we live in. We ask this in your name. Amen. If you can turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I encourage you to have your Bibles with you and uh, to open them and read them alongside us while we're we're studying it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to read the first 11 verses. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint us judges, even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. 
you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. These verses are dealing with lawsuits among the church and at first there may not seem to be uh, much connection to the previous section or the one that comes after which is clearly focused on sexual immorality but there is a connection, a strong connection because what was taking place was the result of a form of, of lust. Uh, lawsuits, especially financial ones, usually arise out of greed or covetousness or a desire to retain certain material benefits and therefore a lawsuit is an attempt from one person to force another to yield to what you regard as right. The dictionary definition of lust is any obsessive craving or desire and while that's often associated with sex it can relate to money or food or even something else. So you can see how someone who's greedy and grasping and determined to hang on to their rights, especially regarding material matters, is guilty of some form of lust, making things more important than people. And that was seemingly the problem here. It can be a problem for us today. We live in a society where people consider that they have rights and that often they demand those rights. Now the church fights in Corinth, remember there were the contentions and divisions, and Paul had addressed those in the earlier chapters, they were spilling over and resulting in members going to the Roman courts. And Paul wanted them to realise that this wasn't right. And he brings out three, three things in these verses. First off, he says that they were being stupid or foolish. And the second is these lawsuits are actually shameful. And then thirdly, he raises the question about the spiritual status of those who were involved. Let's look at these. Let's look at verse 1. He makes a statement, they dare to take these disputes to the ungodly rather than to the saints. And this clear implication is that this is a, an audacious act. It's actually an outrageous act. It's bold and it's daring, but not in the right sense of the word. In a sense, they've lost sight of what they're about. Paul seems to be exasperated. He's frustrated with the Corinthians. The congregation in Corinth had difficulties. They were seemingly dysfunctional. These converts had come to Christ from hardcore paganism. They weren't sort of like the, the Jewish people who had that historic uh, understanding of God. And they were having lots of trouble establishing a consistent Christian lifestyle and, and a unified Christian congregation. And Paul's exasperation shows in the use of his, his phrase, you may have spotted it as we read it, do you not know? He uses it six times in this chapter. Don't you know these things? We find the first two don't knows are in, in verse two and three, where he implies that, that anybody who does such things is really an ignorant person. They're foolish. But verse two, don't you know that the church is going to judge the world? And then in verse three, don't you know that the church is going to judge angels? I must admit that when I read these, when I read them before even, what do you mean the Lord's people are going to judge the world? Well, at the very least, it means this. Surely he's referring to those passages in both the Gospels and in the Epistles where we're clearly told that when the Lord returns, the saints are going to share the throne of judgment with him. We're going to rule and reign with Christ and we're therefore 
going to be entering into judgment with him. Now, just how we're going to do that, we're not told. But somehow we're going to enter into the, the mind and heart of God as he examines the motives and the hearts and the thoughts and the innermost desires and urges of men. We'll be there to agree with Christ when he condemns the world at the day of judgment. Much of this is a mystery. I don't fully understand it. But just look at a, a few references. In Ephesians 2 verse 6, it says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure, we will also reign with him. Jude 1.15 says that the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and convict them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness. Then in Revelation 20 and verse 4, it says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who have been given authority to judge. You can see Paul's argument then, can't you? Is, is it not rather ridiculous that you people who are going to have to deal with such awesome matters as the judgment of the world and of angels can't even settle these little squabbles amongst yourselves? It's almost like, trying to think of an analogy, having a great mathematician working on some complex problems and then calling on a GCSE, a GC students and asking them to help balance his checkbook. It's ridiculous isn't it? So Paul's argument that it's stupid to have lawsuits between brothers. Paul goes on to say that it's also shameful that they were not able to find people of integrity within the church who could arbitrate in such an instance as this. He says it's shameful. Why? Because it results in the testimony of the church actually being tarnished. And the name of Jesus being brought into disrepute because the whole cause of Christ and the gospel is going to lose attractiveness in the eyes of those who need it most in the world around to unbelievers. In fact, he goes on to say that for the sake of the gospel, we do not accept financial loss. I recently read of a, a Christian businessman who explained that when somebody accused him of overcharging or of taking advantage of him, in business, and he made it his practice to say, well, how, how much is involved there? And when he learned the amount, he'd say, well, forget it. I don't want that money. I don't agree with you, but if you feel it's yours, I'd rather you have the money than fight with you. And this would often shock the individual involved and sometimes open a door for a witness that had never opened up before. And while that's not expressly a dispute within the church, it demonstrates the right kind of attitude. What we should never forget is that as believers, we're called to demonstrate a, a different lifestyle to the world, one of which we're ready to surrender our personal rights for the cause that we serve. There's nothing more characteristic of a believer than his willingness to surrender, even at his own cost, to the personal rights so that the cause of the gospel can move on and prevail. Paul develops more of that later in his letter. Now, Paul isn't expressly saying that we should never go to court, but that issues between members, brothers and sisters in the church should, should be able to be dealt with within the context of the church. So a question for us here at Matthew Henry, or maybe if others are watching from other churches or uh, other places, um, how should we seek to resolve issues that we've got amongst ourselves. 
And if we have issues, then we should seek to resolve them by getting people with integrity within the church to help us sort them out. The last phrase, uh, or phrase in verse 8, adds another dimension to our understanding of this passage. In the ancient society, uh, as well as in much of the world today, there wasn't, there wasn't much of a middle class. People were either very wealthy or very poor. And many times the wealthy would exploit the poor. And the church in Corinth was made up of both classes of people and, and now they found themselves sitting side by side. And it's quite possible that some of the wealthier people were actually exploiting the poorer people and possibly trying to use the corrupt Roman legal system to bribes, we don't know, to, uh, to just cheat on people. Well, Paul told them to stop cheating. Stop cheating each other and exploiting each other and doing wrong to each other. For now they were brothers and sisters. And that brings us to the, the next DNO. Because in this passage, as Paul pivots to his next point, and the third, third thing which he, he raises, which is their spiritual state, he's questioning whether they're truly born again. In verse 8, he says, But you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And the word in verse 9 is, Do you not know that the wicked or wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? The same basic root words. What Paul is really saying is, look, when, when you're so aggressive in defence of your own rights that you take a brother to law before a secular court, you're wronging that brother. Even though you may be right in your cause, you are wronging your brother. That unjust action gives rise to the question, have you actually ever been justified before God? To treat another unjustly makes one ask if you have been justified. He says the unjustified, the unrighteous, those who haven't been regenerated, born again, those whose lifestyle is defined by those actions, sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, involvement in prostitution and homosexuality, thieving, being greedy, drunkenness, slandering. It's those whose words are used as weapons against others, to abuse, to insult, to humiliate, to intimidate, those who swindle defrauding they can't inherit the kingdom of God but we see that Paul doesn't mean that those who have been involved in these things can't be saved because he goes on to say that's what some of you were but you've come out of it what he is saying very clearly is that things or these things can't be continued as a lifestyle for Christians conversion makes a visible difference and if it doesn't then there is room to question whether there has been conversion. He summarises our conversion and post-conversion experience in verse 11, which in the Amplified Version says this, And such were some of you before you believed, but you were washed by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. You were sanctified, that is set apart for God and made holy. You were justified, declared free from guilt in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit of our God who is the source of the believer's new life and changed behaviour. Paul then continues to address a particular issue uh, with attitudes to sexual immorality and we're going to pick up at verse 12 and read through to verse 20. So again you can turn to your Bibles. Verse 12. Everything is permissible for me but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. 
The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. As Nathan explained last week, Corinth was a city that we know was given over to the worship of sex. Remember the temple of Aphrodite that stood on the hill behind the ancient city? There were probably around a thousand priestesses there who would come down into the streets at night and ply their trade. Sexual promiscuity therefore was accepted and actually was highly regarded in the culture, much as it is today in our culture. If we look at our films, music, our lifestyle, sexual promiscuity and immorality is the norm. And so when Paul planted the church there, he taught them that this was wrong and the Christians began to challenge the whole sexual permissiveness of the city. Paul had said that what was going on in the city was wrong, but there were some in the church who seemingly took issue with him on that. Some said that he himself had taught uh, things that laid the groundwork for, for viewing that some of the sexual practices uh, were actually okay for Christians to engage in. And there's nothing more relevant, more up to date, I'd say more of the moment than the word of God, because that's exactly what we can see happening around us today in many denominations and churches and we need to check our own attitudes in regard to this. There are voices being raised and decisions being taken saying that we need to soften our attitudes towards immorality uh, and towards certain sexual practices and allow them to be manifest even by Christians. And this is exactly the problem that Paul was confronting there in Corinth. Notice the quotation marks in verses 12 and 13. Now these weren't there in the original uh, text, but they're the translator's way of bringing out the fact that Paul is referring to things that were, were being quoted to him. Possibly these were the words that he'd written in a previous letter, one that we don't have, but uh, we know from other references that, that Paul had probably written to the Corinthian church before this. Uh, but uh, these words were now being taken out of, out of context. We know that at other times Paul had confronted legalism in the church and it may be that here his words which were written to address legalism were now being used to promote a very liberal approach to the lifestyle that surrounded the Corinthian church. What Paul brings out here is that there is a need for that balance. The legalists trying to live by the law will look at things and say okay show me show me where in scripture it says we can do this. While the new covenant uh, is entirely different. We're no longer under the law. But as we know from Paul's writing to the church in Rome, that doesn't give us license to keep on sinning. And Paul brings out the balance here. He says everything's permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And we're not 
to be mastered by it. C.S. Lewis uh, said that Satan always sends error into the world in pairs. Pairs which are opposites. And his great hope is that you will get so upset about one of these errors that you will fall off the fence into the other and then he's got you. Well, Paul balances the truth so wonderfully here. We notice the things that, that hurt have a tendency to habit form. Have you noticed that? You tend to keep on doing them. They give you a certain degree of pleasure and that's why you don't mind the hurt so much. But that degree of pleasure is, is habit forming, either physically or emotionally or in whatever way. Things that are or may be permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. Are we? What, what things are we mastered by? We may think that we're not mastered by anything, that we're in control, but are we? Questions asking myself is my desire to eat. Can I control that? If I fast, how do I feel? Does that show and demonstrate that actually I master food? Food doesn't master me. Paul then addresses another quote that food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. And the implication from some of the church was that just as the physical act of eating uh, didn't have any spiritual effect, so indulging in promiscuous sexual activity doesn't affect one's spiritual life. Now, Paul's answer to this is a profound revelation of the difference between our food appetites and our sexual appetites. And here we see God's word revealing some of those deep things relating to our human nature, which is far more profound than anything the world sees or understands. And it shows up the shallowness of the world's view, which in regard to sex is not what God had ordained. Remember, God gave us sex as a good gift. Paul says, true, food is made for the stomach and the stomach is made for food. But God will destroy both one and the other. In other words, it's only a temporary arrangement. It's true that stomach and food were made for one another. God created us that way, but he only did it for a temporary purpose. And the day is coming when God will destroy both food and the stomach. In other words, God has no permanent plan for the stomach, but he does have a permanent plan for the body. And that's the point that Paul is making. The body, apart from its digestive apparatus, if you like, had, has a reason and purpose in God's programme. Therefore, digestion is temporary, but the body is not. But sexuality is, is much more profound and it touches us at a, a much deeper level. Sexuality, according to the scriptures, pervades our whole humanity. It touches not just our, our body in physical terms, but it touches our soul, our psyche, our social relationships with one another. And even more profound, sex is something that characterises and touches us at the level of the spirit as well. We're told by the world that sex and the pleasure it brings only touches us at the physical level, or maybe there's a bit of emotional stuff in there as well. And the sexual revolution of the 60s has morphed into an ever-present challenge uh, to the correct understanding of God's creative order, a challenge that's actually been there since the fall and was there in the Corinthian uh, church day as well. 
The latest incarnation of this challenge is the constant reiteration of the philosophy that sexual differences between male and female are basically shallow, superficial. They're just external differences. At heart, they say, we're, we're just human beings. And we find that being promoted through the gender and transgender ideologies that have uh, been uh, impacting us and are impacting us so much these days. But the word of God never tells us that. In scripture, from the very moment that man appears on the scene until the time that man, or till the end of time, uh, man appears as two sexes. We're told in Genesis 1.27 that God created them, male and female, he created them. That division between our sexuality runs through our whole being. We're not only different, male and female, in our physical bodies, but we're different in the way we approach each other, in our attitudes, our emotions, our reactions. In fact, we're created to complement. Paul picks up on the analogy of the stomach and food and referring to the body, he says that the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The body is not ultimately for sex, but for the Lord. It's the possession of the Lord himself. Remember the verses that we're holding in our heads, in our minds, that we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. And there is a dignity about humanity that is above any other created being. Humanity was created, was made to be dwelt by God. This is an exciting, remarkable, and uh, one of the most awesome teachings in the word of God. We were made to be indwelt by God himself. We were made to be indwelt by God himself. The body was made for the Lord and the Lord for the body. It's an incredible truth when you begin to understand what Paul is really saying here. You can't compare it to any other kind of relationship, such as the stomach and food. Paul brings out that God has a purpose for the body. In verse 14, we read that he's going to raise it up. He raised up the body of the Lord and he will raise us up also. However, sexuality that, that penetrates our whole being will not be expressed on the physical level in the resurrected body. But it will have its expression in the soul, at the spiritual level. And as with the stomach and food, there will be no need for our sexual organs in heaven. Do you remember Jesus' response to the question by the Sadducees? We read of it in Luke 20 and around verse 34, where they were questioning about the woman who'd been married and then her husband died and then she married his brother and then he died. And so it went on. And they were asking, so who, whose wife will she be in heaven? And Jesus replied that in heaven there will not be any marriage. The purpose for sex in this life will not be continued in heaven. There's no marriage. There's no procreation. There's no death. So Paul moves from this thought to tackle the issue of prostitution in the church, which was a real issue. In verse 15, he says, shall I take my body and unite it with a prostitute? We might say, whoa, whoa, what kind of church is this that they're doing, doing these things, mixing and, and sort of having relationships with prostitutes? And we can see Paul's expression of horror at this too. Never, he says, who would want to do a thing like that? But in contrast, the Christian's union with his Lord is much, much deeper than even a sexual union. Notice that Paul refers back into and, and he quotes 
from Genesis here. You can see that in verse 16. He takes those words, he takes what God spoke to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2.24, where it says, the two will become one flesh, which is applied to marriage. And he applies it here to the passing liaison with a temple prostitute. What he says is that something goes on in the act of sex that creates a union that's far deeper than the mere passing pleasure of the moment. It's a part of that whole mystery that God designed and set forth at the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden. And it has a tremendous impact on those who indulge in it. We realise that affects us today. What are the issues that are affecting us today? It may not be prostitutes as such, but there are massive issues facing us in our society and in the church today. There's a casual approach to sexual relationships in the world and that permeates into the church. Many of our young people have succumbed to the lie that sexual relationships outside of marriage are okay. It's the norm. Everyone does it. We live together and then maybe we get married. Actually, it's not just the younger people that that temptation has taken a hold of. It's there with older folk too. The use of pornography is a major, major problem in the world, but in the church too. And it's a problem not just with men, although they are the predominant, I'll say, abusers of it, but increasingly with women as well. And as a church, I'm aware that this is an area that maybe we've not been open about or been able to help one another with, but we need to seek to address that as we move forward. What is Paul bringing out here is a profound insight and is something that we need to take seriously. Paul is telling us that something happens when you indulge in a sexual relationship that is far deeper than your feelings will ever recognise. When we engage in a sexual act, we enter an intimacy that can never be forgotten. It's sort of stamped on us. And we're dealing with very deep and powerful forces. In contrast, the Christian's relationship with his Lord is one of spiritual identity. These are some of the most profound words written in God's word. And Paul says in verse 13, 13, that the body is not meant for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And in verse 17, he says, he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. The Lord is spirit. And we're human spirits. And when regeneration occurs, and when we're born again, there's a kind of fusing of identity. It's what Peter refers to in his letter when he says that his divine power has given us everything we need so that we may participate in the divine nature. So that we may participate in the divine nature. 2 Peter 1 verse 4. Just think about that for a minute. What a fantastic statement it is. This represents the dignity of humanity, that, that we have an ability, a capacity within us to fuse with the very nature of God. So there's no distinction left between us and him as to identity. We're, we're one spirit. And from there on, that's our identity. It's who we are. That, that's what forms the basis of the new covenant in the word of God. The availability of the life of God to the believer so that we actually face every situation, every circumstance with a new power, with a new ability to resist, a new ability to understand and a new ability to see things that we never saw before. In the light of this truth, 
Paul says in verse 18 that we're to flee sexual immorality. He says, don't, don't let your bodies be impacted by it. Don't stay and try and resist it. Don't try to fight it. Flee it. Run away from it. He brings out that sexual sin impacts the body in a way that other sins do not. For example, we know uh, it, the effect of excessive alcohol and drunkenness. We know the effect of drugs on our mental and physical well-being. We know the effects of gluttony and overeating and all those things. And they destroy the beauty of the human body and they actually make it a caricature of what God designed. But this is the amazing truth. Our bodies have a unique capacity. It's a marvellous capacity to hold God and to be intimately related to the greatness and majesty and glory of God, to actually have God in us by his spirit. That is the temple, God dwelling in something and transforming it into a temple, something we can look at in more depth another time. But sexual immorality defiles that temple it offers the temple to another and it brings the body of that person who is the temple into a wrong union and therefore it's basically the sin of idolatry. Sexual covetousness, the desire for another person's body, sexual immorality is a form of idolatry. And we don't want to be idol worshippers, we want to worship the true and living God. I close with the words that we started with. The final verses of this chapter, verse 19 and 20. Do you not know that your, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were brought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that it's the truth. It's a living word. Uh, Father, we ask that through your spirit we will know the ability to Lord, take the things that we need to apply to our own lives. Lord, to live by the light of what's been revealed to us. Lord Jesus, that as we apply it, as we obey it, Lord, that we would bring glory to your name. We ask this in your name. Amen.